Why did the Kennedys hide their third child from the rest of the world? Kate Clifford Larson will join us to talk about her new biography, Rosemary, the Hidden Kennedy Daughter. Rose denied the lobotomy for a very, very long time. And in fact, she didn't visit her daughter for 20 years, which is pretty shocking. What brings certain people to give and give and give? Larissa McFarker will tell us about her new book, Strangers Drowning. They don't understand the motivations of the rest of us who know perfectly well that so much is needed and yet we don't do anything. They, they don't get it. Alexander Alter will be here with an update from the literary world. Greg Coles has bestseller news. And we'll let readers and listeners give us editors here at the Book Review a little feedback. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Kate Clifford Larson joins us now. Her new book is Rosemary, the Hidden Kennedy Daughter. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you? Good, good. Well, thank you for joining us. This is um, not an easy book, I imagine, to write. Um, a biography of Rosemary Kennedy. Is this the first biography of her? It is. It was surprising to me when I started researching her life to find that, of course, she's mentioned in all those other Kennedy family biographies, but she's always just a peripheral character that makes an appearance, you know, a couple of times in the other books. So it just seemed right that she deserved her own her own biography and, and have her own voice come through. And you've written other biographies before of Harriet Tubman and Mary Surratt. What drew you to Rosemary? That's an interesting question. I'm, I saw her biography, I mean her obituary in the uh, Boston Globe back in 2005, and um, it just hit me. You know, it's just one of those moments, one of those things, and I I just felt moved to find out more about her, and there wasn't a whole lot to find out. So I just put it in the back of my mind that I'd like to research her life more, and I did, and I became completely captivated by her. So um, I went on to write the biography. Let's start um, at the beginning of Rosemary's life, which uh, really begins um, very tragically. Tell us about her birth. So according to my research, um, it appears that when Rose was giving birth to Rosemary, she was at home and had a nurse attending her, and they were waiting for the obstetrician to arrive to deliver the baby. And the nurse held baby Rosemary back in the birth canal until the doctor could arrive, which is horrifying to think about. But she had been trained to deliver babies. However, the priority was to wait till the doctor came, and that's what she did. And she insisted that Rose hold back as much as possible, which, of course, Rose could not do. And so the nurse helped her and held the baby back. So it's clear that the baby, Rosemary, must have suffered some uh, oxygen deprivation that probably contributed to her intellectual disabilities. So this is 1918. She's the third child born to Rose and Joe Kennedy. What age was she when they began, when they realized that, you know, she wasn't developing at the usual rate? I think uh, probably when she was about 18 months old, Rose began to realize that her development was much slower than her two boys had been. Uh, that was Joe Jr. and Jack, um, and they were three and um, two at the time that Rosemary was born. And at first, she Rose said that she um, just attributed to differences in children and between boys and girls. But the, the, her fourth baby, Kathleen, was born kick, 
And over the following 18 months, as Rosemary reached the age of three and Kick was 18 months old, uh, Rose began to realize there was something very, very different and and, uh, wrong about Rosemary and that her developmental delays were significant. And it wasn't too long before Kick was bypassing uh, Rosemary in speech and and athletic abilities as uh, small children. So her disabilities were both cognitive and physical. Yes, they were. She had a difficult time riding a bicycle, um, you know, swimming, playing tennis, steering a sailboat. And, of course, the Kennedys are famous for their sailing. And she just had a a difficult time even sledding, you know, steering a sled on a a snowy hillside. Um, She had a difficult time eating food, you know, feeding herself with a spoon or a fork. So there were um, physical delays as well as intellectual. Obviously, our understanding of child development and mental health has changed enormously since that time. But how was her behavior and her development viewed at the time? Was she labeled in a certain way? Um, When she was enrolled in school at the Edward Devotion School in Brookline, Massachusetts, the kindergarten teachers recognized immediately that she had some delays. Um, and they told Rose and Joe that, that Rosemary was struggling. Um, and Brookline instituted intelligence tests, IQ tests, um, very early on. They were one of the first cities in the country to do that. And they tested Rosemary, and she t- tested very low in comparison to her, her peers. So they, there, there wasn't really a label at first, but over time, as Rosemary uh, went to different schools, some of the administrators and teachers began to use the old-fashioned term of mentally retarded. And, uh, but Rose and Joe were not willing to accept that label, and they kept trying to find a cure, which, of course, you can't find a cure for intellectual disabilities. But they kept trying. They kept thinking that no matter what they did, they could always find a way to cure Rosemary of her disabilities. And what were some of those attempted cures? Well, they... They did odd things, like aside from shifting her off to different schools, um, boarding schools from the time that she was 11 years old, some of them were schools for um, intellectually uh, disabled students. Others were convent academies and other types of private schools that were for, you know, able students, but Rosemary was not. They also did things like have her get um, hormone injections, There was a doctor in Boston who was widely respected, but he believed that hormones affected intellectual and physical uh, development. And so she endured um, these hormone injections every week when she was a young teen. Um, She was having also other issues. We believe she might have had occasional epileptic seizures. Um, She clearly was beginning to demonstrate some mental health issues. So they gave her pills to quiet her down, and it's not clear what those pills were. Um, and they put her on diets constantly. So, I, you know, poor little Rosemary was subjected to an awful lot as a child and a teenager and young adult. Diets, you mean for weight control or, or in an attempt to somehow cure her or change her? It was part of the, the family culture, or Rose instituted that culture on the family that everybody had to be concerned with an ideal weight. But with Rosemary, they linked it to her becoming lazier and lazier. And if she had less weight on her, she wouldn't be quite as lazy. Like it was a character flaw if she continued to gain weight. And she wasn't as athletic as her siblings. 
and her parents sort of forced her to do these things, but she wasn't as capable as her siblings were. The subtitle of your book is The Hidden Kennedy Daughter. To what extent um, and how did her parents cover up her existence? They spent a lot of time pretending that Rosemary was just fine, so much so that when they sent her off to some of these boarding schools, they actually lied to the administrators and teachers about the extent of Rosemary's disabilities. And so then the teachers and the administrators would discover just um, the types of needs that Rosemary required, and they were not equipped to deal with that. The the Kennedys were sort of duplicitous, and and, um, they really were quite fraudulent in the way they treated these other schools and trying to get Rosemary taken care of. They also... Um, had her watched constantly. They uh, controlled all of her public movements. And as she grew into a young adult, that became more challenging because she was beautiful and she wanted to be out in the public like her siblings. So they were always orchestrating every public appearance. When she went to dances and parties, there was always somebody to accompany her, often her brothers or her sisters. Her brothers would be sure that they danced with her frequently and had select friends that would ask Rosemary to dance. They didn't want her to interact with young men that she didn't know or they didn't know. Were, they, were her siblings complicit in this cover-up then? they were Yes, absolutely complicit, um, which is sweet on the one hand because they cared about her and they protected her. On the other hand, uh, you know, it made them part of this lie uh, that the, the family was carrying around. The girls, when they would go to parties, say at Hyannisport, they would help Rosemary get dressed and put her makeup on, and they were always worried that she would try to put lipstick on herself in public because she could never get it right. So they were always horrified that, you know, that might happen, and it probably did happen, and that's why they were so concerned. So to have that burden on those kids, too, was was a lot. It was an awful lot. The second major tragedy that happened to her, obviously, was uh, her lobotomy. How did that come about? Rosemary had returned from England um, because of World War II, and it wasn't safe for her to be there. And uh, being in England was the happiest time of her life. The Assumption Sisters and the convent school that they ran was just fabulous. The Montessori method that uh, they used to teach her was just perfect for Rosemary. But she had to come back in in, um, 1940. She missed England and her friends and the teachers. Her parents shifted around to several different schools and convents trying to keep her sort of out of sight. She started escaping in the middle of the night from this convent school in Washington, D.C., and the nuns would find her, and she'd be all disheveled and leaves in her hair, and and they suspected that she was out... um, you know, meeting young men or was at risk to meet young men who might take advantage of her. She was 22 years old at this time? She was 22 at this time, uh, and by 1941 she was turning 23. Her mother tried to have her committed to a psychiatric hospital, but they didn't go through with that, and I'm not really sure why. And then Joe decided to have her lobotomized which is really shocking because the surgery was very rarely done. Less than 100 operations had been done at the time, and it was not appropriate for a young woman like Rosemary. But basically he wanted her sort of silenced, and the doctors had said that this would make Rosemary more compliant and pliable and, um, 
you know, just more calm. So he forced her to have the lobotomy. And what happened when she had the surgery? The surgery is a horrific, uh, was a horrific operation at the time, and the doctors uh, scraped too much of her brain, and she became completely disabled. She came out of the operation unable to walk or talk or feed herself, dress herself. She could not take care of herself at all. She had to learn how to walk and talk again. She always walked with a a significant limp after that. Um, One of her arms was disfigured as a result. And she only regained speech in, you know, short phrases and a few words here and there. She never could really carry on a conversation again. It, it, it totally disabled her. One of the um, things that makes the book, I think, so poignant um, are Rosemary's letters. How did you get hold of, of her letters? And is this the first time that they've been made public? Some of them uh, are seen for the first time in public, yes. Um, they are part of the Rose Kennedy and Joseph P. Kennedy papers at the JFK Library. And over the past uh, eight, seven years, Um, The library has slowly opened up portions of those collections, and in those uh, papers are some of the letters from Rosemary to her mother and father and her siblings. They're just incredible. Some of them are just cute, adorable letters from a young girl or young woman who still has sort of like a fifth grade kind or fourth grade uh, mentality, and she writes about her clothes and her friends and her happy times, and then some of the letters are filled with angst about missing her family and worrying about disappointing them, and she's trying to do everything she can to meet their expectations, and it's just heartbreaking, really heartbreaking, it, and it's a, it's a fascinating glimpse into Rosemary through her own eyes and through her own words. One last question, obviously, that so many questions remain about the story, but did Joe or Rose ever acknowledge their error or any regret? Neither one of them admitted it, it publicly or in the papers that I was able to look at. Joe, um, I think, I'm sure he must have been pained to see his daughter so crippled, but he did say in a letter to one of the nuns that took care of Rosemary at St. Coletta's that her institutionalization was the answer to their prayers of the problem of Rosemary. And so that's heartbreaking. And Rose sort of looked at um, what happened to Rosemary as a reflection on all the hard work that she had put into helping Rosemary sort of just was cast aside once the lobotomy happened and Rosemary could no longer function independently. Rose denied the lobotomy for a very, very long time. And in fact, she didn't visit her daughter for 20 years, which is pretty shocking. I think one of the most shocking things you said is that when she did finally go visit her, that Rosemary recoiled. Yeah, she did. She did. And you can imagine, after not seeing your mother for 20 years, you're left alone in an institution. The children didn't see her for at least that long. Jack did see her in 1958 briefly. Um, but the the rest of the family, you know, many of them didn't see her till the late 1960s and, and, and early 1970s. It's tragic the way the family 
sort of just walled itself off from Rosemary, and that's because of Joe and Rose. I, I can't blame the siblings because they did what their parents were told, parents told them. Well, it's such a sad story and um, an important one, I think, to uh, bring to light. So, Kate, thank you so much. Thank you so much. The book, again, is Rosemary, The Hidden Kennedy Daughter by Kate Clifford Larson. Alexandra Alter joins us now with notes from the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. So there was this little prize given out this week. Yes, there was a tiny award. Some may have heard of it. The Nobel Prize in Literature was awarded on Thursday. Who did it go to? It went to a Belarusian journalist who's known for her works about Chernobyl and World War II and women's involvement in that. Her name is Svetlana Alexievich. I think, you know, one of the immediate reactions was this is pretty unusual for a nonfiction writer to win. And when a lot of the people— the last time? Uh, it was decades ago. Winston Churchill was a winner for nonfiction. Bertrand Russell was a winner for nonfiction. But it's much more common for the Nobel to go to a poet or a pro- someone who writes fiction novels. Is this and, the first woman who's won for nonfiction? Yes, I believe so, which is pretty exciting. And, you know, the kind of nonfiction that she does, she does a lot of oral history. She conducts thousands of interviews with survivors of disasters like Chernobyl, which is something that affected her own family. So she has a very personal connection to it and probably an unusual degree of empathy for people that have been through that kind of thing. And she's done so at, you know, some risk to herself, like anyone who's operating um, in a country where there can be an oppressive regime and is sort of countering the official narrative. She's had to move around quite a bit, and it's been dangerous work for her. And one of her editors who I spoke to today said he thinks, you know, it's not only the quality of her writing that's being recognized, but the risk and her courage in in going out and finding these stories and telling them. Here in the States, she's been published by Dulkey Archive and by Picador. That's right. And also W.W. Norton published her in the 90s, um, her book, Zinky Boys, which was about um, Russian soldiers who were sent to, Af- to Afghanistan to participate in the invasion there and were many of them sent home in zinc coffins. So that was another work of intense, you know, reporting that she did, interviews that she did. So what's going on, like, with the publishing industry and the right situation? Are people scrambling now to bring out more of her work here? Yeah, they're certainly reprinting here. Um, You know, I think some of her work has actually been recognized. The Delkey Archive Press book, which was called Voices from Chernobyl, won a National Book Critics Circle Award. And I think, you know, has sold, you know, close to 15,000 copies or possibly more. Those are Nielsen numbers. So it's not that she's entirely unknown, but certainly this prize is going to generate a lot of interest. And so far, just three of her books have been translated into English. So I'm sure we'll be seeing rights scrambling to get, you know, the, the next translations done. I think she has five or six books in total. So read the tea leaves for us. What does this mean, that it's a woman, that it's Belarusian, that it's very political, that it's nonfiction? There's always tea leaf reading to do. I think the nonfiction is probably more exciting for people in the literary world. I think the Nobel Committee often has an eye to political situations. This is a time of, you know, a time in our history when Russia is at war in Syria. They are at war in Ukraine. And this is a woman who has written very critically about their military involvement and the sort of, you know, growing militarism of, of Putin. And I, I believe that I think by recognizing her, they're sort of sticking a finger in his eye, if you will. Philip Gorievich was the sort of person who recognized uh, or thought that she might win or 
Yes. Um, he's a New Yorker writer, and he was rooting for her very early on. I thought it was smart of him to, to sort of pick her out. And he was he was pointing her out as a smart choice because he felt that nonfiction had not been recognized as literature as much as other forms of writing. And he said, not only would you be honoring this woman who has been so courageous and is a beautiful stylist, but you'd be elevating sort of the perception of this whole, you know, sort of aspect of the literary world. So. Yes, we nonfiction journalist writers like it when nonfiction journalist writers Journalists get really excited when journalists win the Nobel. All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Larissa McFarker is here to talk about her new book, Strangers Drowning, Grappling with Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Overpowering Urge to Help. Hi, Larissa. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So um, this is a book about, for lack of a better term, do-gooders. Is that the term that you use in the book? I do use that term. And the reason is uh, not that I'm unaware of its pejorative implications, but because of that. I wanted the term because it has a lot of baggage. And part of what I wanted to explore in this book is that baggage. Um, I started doing this project interviewing people who donated one of their kidneys to a stranger. And I went into it thinking, I just want to know what these people are like and how they live their lives. But I was very startled to find that almost all of them had encountered a lot of skepticism and even hostility for doing what seemed to me like an uncomplicatedly good act. They, their family were resentful that they donated to a stranger. What about us? Mm-hmm. Uh, their friends just thought they were bizarre. And doctors thought they must be crazy. They were very, very suspicious. And so I wanted to look into that. Why, why do these people who do these extraordinarily good things make us uncomfortable? And if you say to someone good people make us uncomfortable, they may say, well, what are you talking about? No, they don't. But if you use the term do-gooder, immediately they know what you're talking about. And right. so I wanted to investigate that the baggage that that word comes with. And you did that by sort of a number of case studies, looking in depth at people who had pursued either these singular altruistic acts or sort of lived a life of a succession of altruistic acts. Yeah, I didn't. I, I I wanted to write about people whose ethical ethical commitment was more or less total. I'm I'm not interested. Well, I am interested in people who do extraordinary things, but for the sake of this book, I was interested in people whose whole lives are mm-hmm. dedicated to helping other people. So, I have a distinction um, that I found helpful distinguishing between a hero and a do-gooder, mm-hmm. and these are just my uses of these terms. A hero is someone who who finds uh, a situation that requires his help thrust upon him and rises to the occasion and does the noble thing. So, so it's it might like, be it's circumstance. Exactly. That's... It's thrust upon them. You see someone uh, that needs rescuing from a fire and you go to rescue them. And after that, you go back to your ordinary life. And heroes of that kind don't arouse the same discomfort that do-gooders do because they're ordinary people like us. They just did the right thing. And we can always imagine, hey, if we were there, we would have we rescued right. that guy from the fire too. But we couldn't because we weren't there. So it doesn't feel like a reproach. Whereas do-gooders are people who, even if they don't see someone in need of help because they're burning up, they know that somewhere there there is always somebody who needs their help. And they look for that person. They go looking for trouble. Uh, and there's a kind of rationality, a kind of calculatedness to that approach. They plan their good deeds in cold blood. And that's a kind of person, a do-gooder, 
as I call them, that does make people uncomfortable because I think in part because it is a reproach. Right. It's interesting because the first instance, the hero instance, is one that um, people almost, you know, people seem jealous. Of why wasn't I in that circumstance? Like in the wake of 9-11, if you were in New York, you kind of saw a lot of people that you could tell sort of felt like they wish they had been put into a position. And they sought to kind of get themselves into a position where they could be a hero, whether it was going to volunteer somewhere. Um, and that that somehow feels different from that second instance, that do-gooderism, where there isn't any sort of imperative circumstance that's forcing people that's a really good point. Yes. I mean, I think crises bring out uh, the best in all of us. And we know this in terms of donations, uh, you know, when something happens like the Haiti earthquake or 9-11 or the tsunami uh, longer ago in Sri Lanka and Indonesia, huge am- amounts of money given in sympathy for those causes because they were so vivid. And ordinarily, people don't think so much about the need that exists in the world all the time because it isn't vivid. This is actually something that I think divides the kind of person I'm writing about in this book from the rest of us, they have a kind of, it's almost an aesthetic ability to see things that aren't there. Mm -hmm. They have an extraordinarily, extraordinarily vivid imagination. If we see someone right in front of us that needs our help, most of us will help them and would consider it monstrous not to. Uh, Or if we see a photograph like that photograph of that poor toddler in um, Europe drowning uh, that everyone in the world saw, that photograph made vivid to all of us the refugee crisis in Europe. To-do-gooders, they don't need that photograph. They don't need the person right in front of them. It's vivid to them all the time. They can imagine the suffering that's going on that we understand intellectually exists in the world, but they can feel it, and they feel the pull of it like we would feel the need of someone right in front of us. I think it's, it's a kind of genius. It's a kind of moral genius, but not unconnected to a genius of the imagination. It's interesting too, like the conflict that people have over the idea of charity. It's like on the one hand, it's meant to be a moral good to be charitable. And yet on the other hand, nobody wants to be the object of a charitable endeavor. Nobody wants that quote unquote pity. Um, Do you sort of grapple with those contradictions in the book? I think that is a real problem for do-gooders because, yes, as you say, nobody likes to be the recipient of charity. And that's something I explored when I was talking about, when I was writing about um, people who give one of their kidneys to a stranger, because, of course, this is an especially intimate form of giving, and it's one that cannot be reciprocated. And often the, the relationships, if there was one, if there were relationships between the giver and the recipient, were very complicated mm-hmm. because that degree of of mandatory gratitude is quite burdensome. You can't escape from it. And there's a feeling that this person has a kind of power over you sometimes. I, I was very struck by reading the um, – the 1925 book, The Gift, by the anthropologist, the French anthropologist Marcel Moss, who writes about how in the traditional societies he visited, giving was always reciprocal. It had to be because a gift given without expectation of return was not thought to be a selfless act, a higher act, as we Mm -hmm. often think about it. It was an aggressive act because it sets up the giver as more powerful and, and having a higher status than the recipient. It causes the recipient to lose face. And it can be very destabilizing and is altogether bad. And so this is not some new understanding that we've we've come to recognize. This has always been a very 
deep part of human society that giving is a mixed is a mixed thing, and that's part of the reason I think we're ambivalent towards the givers. And did you find in these um, sort of extreme altruists who you profiled that there was a, a smugness or a sense of superiority? I did not. I definitely think that's part of, again, our cliched notion of our of way the to make do-gooder. ourselves more comfortable with yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. No, the, the, the sort of person I'm writing about, their sense of duty is so extreme that they don't actually think what they're doing is extraordinary. It seems extraordinary to us. But they feel that they're just doing their duty. So it doesn't give them a feeling of virtue, just like not stealing anything. Is, it, is guilt us. involved, too? I mean, do some of them do it out of guilt of feeling, you know, you have it. There's a, a, an example cited this four dollar candy apple. Yes, this was a this was a classic example of the kind of crisis that a do-gooder often has early in life before they figured out a system they can live with. One of the people in my book, Julia Wise, uh, as a young woman, she just graduated from college and she was in an orchard and she asked her boyfriend to buy her a candy apple, which cost $4. And that night, her boyfriend said that inspired by her example, he was going to start donating a large amount of his money to charity. That made her realize that the money she had asked him to spend on the candy apple could have been donated to a much more worthy cause. And this thought was so distressing to her that she cried about it for a long time. In my experience interviewing people, there tends to be a lot of guilt when they're young. Um, They have often a sense, an almost overwhelming sense of suffering in the world, a feeling that they're obliged to do something about it. And the guilt comes from powerlessness and not knowing what and, you know, continuing to live their ordinary lives while they figure it out. But then as they grow older, the do-gooders who figure out out how to be uh, committed for the long haul, figure out how to draw moral parameters around their lives, ones that they can live with. So they learn to contain that guilt. And then as they begin to figure out what to do and what they believe in, they don't feel guilty anymore because they feel that they're living as they ought to. As I said, these people are not self-righteous, but there's certainly some people who are, who mm-hmm. do uh, good deeds and feel very puffed up about it. But it, it's funny. I mean, I've had so many conversations where people bring that up. And I do think this is such an overvalued sin in our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, for sure, it's annoying when right. someone's self-righteous uh, and it's irritating and you might not want to hang out with that person. But is it really such a deep character flaw? You know, suppose you have on the one hand a person who – spends their life helping the homeless and is kind of vain about it. And on the other hand, you have someone who's a delightful cynic but does nothing at all. Do we really think that the second person is better than the first? I don't. Right. How did you go about finding the subjects in your book? I mean, a lot of these people aren't necessarily self-promotional. No, none of them are famous at at all, Um, except for Baba Amte, who's famous in India, but he's not famous here. Well, I found out right away that you cannot find them through Google. If you Google saintly, all that comes up is not at all saintly. Um, so you can't find them that way. But you, basically what I did is I came up with things that such a person might do mm-hmm. and found them that way. So the first thing, as I said, was I thought they might give one of their kidneys to a stranger. Another thing I thought such a person might do was adopt lots and lots of special needs kits. Mm-hmm. And so I went to an adoption agency, Spence Chapin, that specializes in such adoptions and in a newsletter found Hector and Sue Badeau, the couple who I wrote about who adopted 20 special needs kids in addition to the two biological kids they had. 
It's interesting because I think also, and again, this may reflect our discomfort or disbelief um, or some kind of suspicion of these people that people think, well, there has to be some kind of self-interest. Like people think about surrogacy and they think, well, the mother makes money, the surrogate mother makes money off it, or they think about foster children again. Maybe money is involved. Did you ever find sort of complicated motivations in any of them? You know, their motivations are as complicated as anyone's. Mm -hmm. And um, part of what I wanted to... Uh, show in this book is that goodness is as complicated as badness because I think there is a notion uh, that goodness is kind of simple and boring. It's a matter of, you know, bunnies and butterflies and it's uh, good people are just kind of dull, which is not at all true. There wasn't the simple kind of cliched motivations that people think of, you know, vanity or uh, money, certainly. Uh, none of that, because I was looking for people who I considered genuine uh, moral exemplars. So there there wasn't that, because as I say, they don't consider what they're doing extraordinary, so right. they didn't get all puffed up about it. But there are, um, these people are as complicated as anyone. And when so, I went into this project, I was thinking, um, I want to defend these people from the mistaken psychological notions that they're crazy. Um, which I think many people hold. I still feel that way. I still feel that they are um, not at all crazy. But there was one psychological theory that I thought was interesting. It's the theory of the parentified child. This is the idea that a child who grows up in a household where one of his parents is not functioning as a parent, either because they're an, he's an alcoholic mm-hmm. or severely mentally ill or for some other reason. And sometimes this causes a child to feel responsible for fixing thrown in the, the trouble. Role. Exactly. Thrown into the parent's role, takes care of the people in his house, tries to be the perfect child, does really well in school, cleans the house, tries to fix things. And the idea is that this child will grow up and feel that they, that obliged to fix the world in the way that he f- tried to fix his family when he was a, a kid. And at first, when I read this, I thought, bah, this is, you know, another one of these psychological theories designed to uh, undermine do-gooders and make us think they're they're unhealthy. But then I looked at the people in my book and I thought, hmm, it certainly is striking how many of them do come from families like that with either an alcoholic or a severely mentally ill patient, uh, parent. And so there may be something to that theory. Um, there are obviously a number of stories of extreme idealism and generosity in the book, but was there one that just struck you personally as being especially impressive? I wholeheartedly admire every single person in this book, and I think it really depends on the individual uh, what they would consider the hardest journey. Certainly one of the hardest things I think I wrote about was what Sue and Hector Badeau did, um, adopting 20 special needs kids, because in that case, there's no distinction at all between their moral work Mm -hmm. and their home. There's no place where they can go and think, all right, I've done my work for the day. Right. I can now relax and be calm because their children were there all the time, of course. And, you know, they loved their children. It wasn't as though their children were um, were a burden to them, but there was no rest for them whatsoever. And I think that is just extraordinarily hard. And how did they explain their motivation? Subido started out just wanting it. She came from a family of four. And when she was a kid, she read a book called The Family Nobody Wanted about a family who adopted 
uh, I think it was 11 children. And that family was not wealthy, but it sounded really appealing to her. When she was a kid, she just thought, what fun to be part of a family like that and to be able to give a home to kids who don't have one. And so in the beginning, it wasn't a moral impulse for her. She just wanted it. And her uh, husband, Hector, came from a family of 16 biological kids. So for him, that seemed like a perfectly normal number for a family. So in the beginning, they certainly always had the idea of helping kids who needed parents, but it was equally a matter of just loving the idea of being in a house full of children. They started with the idea of having two and adopting two, mm -hmm. and it went on from there. And, and I think at a certain point, it did become a more purely moral act, because even though they really deeply loved all their children, as the family got larger and larger, it wasn't so much about, I think, anymore wanting a larger family as coming to realize that there are so many kids out there whom nobody else yeah. was going to adopt, either because they're six teenage brothers and sisters. Who else is going to adopt six teenagers? Right. Or because they have some truly gruesome physical disease that is going to result in early death and need total care before that. You know, these are kids whom nobody else was going to take in. And so I think that the impulse to take those children in was a more purely moral gesture. After meeting um, families like this, people like this, and, and writing the book about them, did you come away with a greater understanding of what motivated them, how they saw themselves than you did going into it? What did you learn? You know, I think that they are motivated, hard as, as it is to believe, with a simple sense of duty. You know, just as we go into a store and we do not pat ourselves on the back for leaving without stealing even a single thing, that's kind of how they feel. Mm -hmm. They don't understand the motivations of the rest of us who know perfectly well that so much is needed and yet we don't do anything. They They don't get it. And... The way some of them feel is, I'm no more important or valuable than anybody else. So how can I expend such enormous quantities of resources on myself when there are so many other people who have nothing? It just makes no sense to them. So it's not as though they feel they are doing something extraordinary. There's, there's also some quality about them of the artist. Um, People tend to think it's very strange when a do-gooder doesn't pay as much attention to his family, doesn't feel that he has to give his family everything he has. But it's like a calling. It's like a calling, exactly. Sue Badeau compares uh, what she and Hector do to someone who climbs Mount Everest, who gives up all kinds of family time and certainly all kinds of leisure and spends enormous amounts of money just to pursue this goal that other people think, why? Why why climb Mount Everest? I mean, it's, it's there. Right. It's tall. But why is that the goal for your life? And she says, you know, this is how we feel about children without parents. This is our mission. This is what we want to do. This is what we feel we must do. Why is that so hard for people to understand? It's our love. It's our calling. It's what we want more than anything else. So if we have to give up ease and comfort and a more ordinary family life for the sake of that mission, 
it makes perfect sense to us. Well, that's something to motivate the rest of us. Larissa, thank you so much. Thank you so much. The book is Strangers Drowning, Grappling with Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Overpowering Urge to Help by Larissa McFarger. John Williams is here now representing our tweeters, listeners, readers, etc. Hi, John. Hey, Pamela. So this week we asked uh, people what big fall book they're looking forward to. It's the big fall book season. This is the big season for publishing and for readers because all the big names come out with their new novels. And so we wanted to get a sense of what people were looking forward to. And we got a pretty good variety of books. Marilyn Barrett named Mary Gateskill's forthcoming new novel, Mare. I'm always excited to read her stuff, too. Jean Ann Green uh, listed Rainbow Rowell's Carry On. Jen P., who is Jen Premack, uh, said David Mitchell's Slade House, which is sort of a short novel by his standards, but his fans are always hungry for more. Someone on Twitter, Antrat, uh, username, also named Slade House. A reader named Dave Brown named City on Fire by Garthris Kahlberg, which makes sense because that book is everywhere this week, um, and Calf by Andrea Klein. And so I looked up Calf, and it's a novel that is based on a couple of real-life events, one of which was John Hinckley's attempted assassination of President Reagan, and the other was the author's real-life story of a friend of hers who um, was killed by her mother when she was a child. And so it sort of dovetails these two stories. What I found really interesting was that the Amazon, uh, the publisher's description of the book online uh, included the line, part, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, and part taxi driver. What weirds me out is that, wait, this is Calf, C-A-L-F. Yes. And we've got Mare. Do we have any other farm animal books (laughs) on the list? I'm taking a quick look. No, although a reader named David McMullen uh, said that he's looking forward to Peter Goralnik's biography of Sam Phillips, which I'm also looking forward to. Is Sam Phillips alive to know that you've just compared him to a farm animal? He's not. He died, I think, in 2003. All right. Well, let's hope he doesn't rule in his grave over that one. (laughs) Michelle Philgate named Jeanette Winterson's novel The Gap of Time, which is part of that new interesting project where novelists are rewriting uh, Shakespeare's plays and updating them for modern times. That's right. Which Shakespeare play as a novel are you looking forward to most? And I think I'm most looking forward to Edward St. Aubin. Yeah, that would be mine, too. He's adapting King Lear, and I just look forward to everything he writes. Thanks, John. Thanks, Pamela. Greg Coles is here with Bestseller News. Hey, Greg. Hi, Pamela. A lot on the list this week. There is a lot on the list this week. Let's uh, get started with the hardcover fiction list. Down at number 15, Margaret Atwood is back on the list with her new novel, The Heart Goes Last, uh, recently reviewed by Matt Johnson. In our and it's pages. last on our bestseller list at number 15. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, then at number 12, the wonderfully named Karen Slaughter is back on the list with a new novel called Pretty Girls. Um, Then jumping all the way up to number five, Jim Butcher, who you may remember from his Dresden Files series that uh, goes back to Stormfront and Full Moon and and et cetera, uh, is back with the first book of a new series. This one's a steampunk fantasy series, and the uh, name of the novel is The Aeronauts Windlass, new at number five. Uh, Then at number three, Jojo Moyes has a sequel to Me Before You. This one is called After You, new at number three. And um, finally, new at number one, our old friend James Patterson uh, with his occasional co-writer David Ellis. Uh, They have a new book out called The Murder House. It's a standalone thriller. All right. What's going on with nonfiction? Five new titles as well on the nonfiction list, starting down at number 14, uh, the former New York Times journalist Edward Klein. Former editor of the magazine. Yes. Yes. 
who uh, last year had a book called Blood Feud on the bestseller list, which was um, kind of a tell-all about the animosity between the Clintons and the Obamas, uh, now has an unflattering portrait of his old nemesis Hillary Clinton called unlikable. So kind of picking up on the Obama. Um, the, Throwing the famous... all those stereotypes about New York Times politics to the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, yes, Unlikable by Edward Klein, new on the list at number 14. Then uh, Paul Theroux has a new travel book called Deep South, uh, also recently reviewed in our pages. That is at number 12. At number nine, the um, singer, model, actress, uh, kind of all around tough girl Grace Jones has written a memoir called I'll Never Write My Memoirs. Uh, she wrote that with Paul Morley, and it's new on the list at number nine. Apparently, she took off her shirt at the uh, her Barnes & Noble reading earlier this week. So Surprising she's... exactly no one. Yes. <laughs> she's still got it. <laughs> Uh, then at number eight, Robert B. Reich, the former uh, labor secretary, has a book called Saving Capitalism. And uh, finally, at number seven, Anne Romney, uh, Mitt Romney's wife, uh, who previously was on the list with a cookbook, now has a memoir called In This Together, looking back especially at her experience with multiple sclerosis. All right. And still at number one? Still at number one, Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard's Killing Reagan. That's no surprise. Okay. Thanks, Greg. <laughs> thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.